listening to the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. We sit down with some of the most highly regarded experts in the field of rehab, from physical therapists, athletic trainers, and much more. We dive into what makes them tick and hear about the lessons they have learned along their journey. Come listen to what these experts have to say. And welcome inside to the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. Today, we have one of the staff PTs for the USOPC Training Center. We have Chris Lefevre. Chris, welcome in. Hey, man. It's nice to meet you, and uh, thanks for having me on. All right, Chris. We talked a little bit pre-show, but kind of why don't you give us a little bit of background about who you are, um, what got you involved in physical therapy, and more specifically, sports physical therapy. Yeah, so um, I'm originally from outside of Philadelphia, and... Uh, Growing up, my parents were both occupational therapists. So kind of my you know, childhood grew up around that. I remember my dad taking me into clinic and just being around that atmosphere. And um, as I grew up, I uh, was kind of interested in the rehab field, um, but wasn't quite sure what route to go. Uh, I ended up getting a job as a PT technician, started hanging out with the physical therapist at the sports clinic I was with, and then kind of the rest was history. So I kind of turned on my parents and went the physical therapy route versus occupational therapy route. But um, no, and uh, from there, uh, obviously went to uh, school for physical therapy, got my doctorate of physical therapy from Slippery Rock University, pursued residency in Houston, completed a fellowship at Duke University, and all those kind of different stepping stones have led me to this position here in Colorado Springs with, uh, with Team USA at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. Gotcha. Um, so I kind of want to go back a little bit, you know, so you got involved in rehab, you know, at a younger age. Um, and then when you were in PT school, did you have any idea that you wanted to do sports PT as like a career or did that kind of come later on? Uh, and kind of what led you to residency at, um, at Ironman? Yeah, you know, I think... Um, there's like this subset of guys and girls who go into PT school who were like, uh, generically, I'm going to go into sports physical therapy. Like, that's what I want to do. And then, you know, your professors try to soften that a little bit and maybe water it down and, oh, you know, go practice in a neuro setting, go do a clinical and, you know, geriatrics or pediatrics. And uh, I just had a feeling that's the route I had always wanted to go because, I, I had a PT technician job in high school and I, I just thought sports PT was so cool at the time and still do now. But um, yeah, so I always kind of had an idea that that was the route that I was going to go. And um, I will say in like the first week of physical therapy school, we had a guest lecturer come in, a guy named uh, Casey Unverzat. He later became a mentor of mine, a CI and he now is a professor at Baylor University. But he uh, first week of PT school, he came in and talked about residencies. And I had no idea what that, what that concept was, a postgraduate residency program. And uh, he highlighted all the different things that a sports physical therapy residency um, kind of has within it, sideline coverage and physician uh, collaboration and organized one-on-one -on -one mentorship. And I just thought it sounded awesome. And from that point on, uh, for the next three years of PT school, that's what I had my eyes set on. And I was, you know, fortunate, fortunate enough to end up uh, in Houston for residency then. Gotcha. And what in particular kind of drew you to Houston's program the most? We actually had um, another Houston, we've had a couple of Houston uh, residency graduates yeah. on here, with Connor, and we've had Aaron before. So what kind of drew you to that program in particular? Yeah. Well, first off, Connor's a great dude and uh, he just landed an awesome position, which I'm sure you two talked about. So we couldn't be more proud of him. 
But um, no, so I mean, to be honest and transparent, like I think I applied to five or six different residency programs around the country. I had a uh, clinical instructor in uh, physical therapy school on one of my clinicals uh, who helped me write down like his top 10 of what he thought were the best residencies in the country. A guy named Tim Tyler. He was the former uh, president of the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapists. Um, a really great guy. And then we, we started talking about this and I picked out, you know, probably based on demographics and maybe some people that I knew or he knew the top five or six I wanted to apply to. And, um, you know, I got turned down by some, some didn't even give me an interview. Others did give me an interview. And I say that because I experienced that as well as other residents, uh, or other, uh, potential residents are applying around. And, um, no Ironman, uh, at the time it was called the sports medicine, uh, the Ironman sports medicine Institute. And now it's known as uh, Memorial Hermann uh, Rocket Sports Medicine Institute for the Rockets. And um, it was a really awesome two-day-long interview process. It seemed very warm. The mentors there seemed interested truly in your development. Um, and Houston just seemed like a cool city. And practically, uh, they were the first to offer me, and they gave me a pretty short window to respond yes. So when you're in that phase in your career, uh, there's not a lot of things you'll say no to. Uh, but it all worked out the same. Uh, I would have picked it regardless of the circumstances. Gotcha. And so what are some of the things that you, you know, experienced during that residency that you feel like helped prepared you for your next steps into fellowship and then even into your career now? Yeah. I mean, I think like, um, culturally sports, physical therapy residencies are very, very important. Um, you're working around people who have been in the field and they get it. Uh, not only can they talk to talk, they can, they can walk it as well. And, um, there, there just, there is a certain edge and a certain culture to higher level sports that there is a learning curve too. And I think, um, you know, predominantly that's what residency and fellowship taught me being around mentors who understood that. But, uh, you know, on the clinical side of things, I worked with a ton of really smart therapists who were, you know, on the cutting edge of what we're trying to do from a rehab perspective. And, um, one-on-one -on -one protected mentorship, protected uh, sports caseloads. I spent a ton of time in the OR doing observation with a guy named Dr. David Abbasi. And, uh, you know, I look back on some of those times as some of the most formative in my career and still provide me just an incredible wealth perspective when I work with post-operative patients at the level that I do here um, with the USOPC. And uh, honestly, it's just like a platter of different opportunities um, that you just wouldn't get anywhere else. You, you certainly can, I guess, but you, it's, it's organized for you. It's promised. There are expectations. There are milestones. There are ways that you are measured that just make it much more formal and put a heavier weight to it. Um, and I think that's important, especially in those first couple of years out of PT school. Gotcha. And so talk to us a little bit more about your fellowship with Duke after that. Um, did you go straight into fellowship or kind of what was the process getting there? Yeah. So um, residency was wonderful. And after I finished uh, residency, I ended up taking a position um, with Ironman and staying uh, in, it's called the Woodlands, Texas. And I, I lived there and I worked there for another year and a half. And it was great. I, I really enjoyed my time there and high level outpatient care. But I felt like I didn't scratch an itch that I still had to work with Division One or elite level athletics. And I got a taste of it in residency, but it certainly wasn't like a cornerstone of my experience. So I started looking into fellowships. Um, you know, there are different fellowships out there. Predominantly, I think people 
most classically talk about like manual therapy fellowships or the over the overhead athlete. Um, but uh, there are division one fellowships out there. And I thought that was really interesting because it didn't hyper specialize me in a certain, like a certain area. I wasn't ready to put, you know, all my eggs in the basket of the shoulder with like a baseball program. Um, and yeah, it just really appealed to me. So at the time, uh, Duke had a program, Wake Forest had a program. I think USC was starting to evolve with their program or emerge with their program, I should say. But uh, Duke's was is certainly one of the oldest, if not the oldest fellowship in the country. And uh, I just kind of had my eye set on it. And uh, I was uh, lucky enough to fake my way in and got the position and, and the rest was history. Gotcha. And similarly, like when we talked about residency, what were some of the lessons that you learned from there? Because it's probably a little bit more um, niche into going, you know, specifically D1 sports. So how has that kind of helped inform your practice now? Yeah. I mean, I hate to say the same answer of what I did for residency first, but I learned a ton culturally. I learned um, where the physical therapist fits in the greater, the larger picture of um, sports medicine um, and the student athlete experience. And, um, you know, I think the outpatient physical therapist you know, certainly not throwing shade, but you, you almost treat a little bit on an island and you get to wear a ton of different hats. And, um, you know, don't take that too literally. I know in the outpatient world, you're working with physicians and you're working with physical therapy assistants and maybe strength coaches, but um, you do the loading, you do the conditioning, you do the rehab, you do the manual therapy, you do the manipulations, you do the taping, you know, all that being said, it's just a different environment than at the division one level. And here you had to, I don't want to say you had to find your lane and stick to it because certainly you evolve in a bunch of different areas, but PT has a very specific hyper-focused role in that world in finding how to uh, leverage, you know, your skill set in that and give really good care, but still blend in with a larger team with a larger goal and not having the entire experience revolve around you, where it does maybe an outpatient care, like the clinician to the patient, and it's just it's just you two. There are so many more variables you have to manage, and um, that's hard. And doing a fellowship program where you have a mentor that uh, leans in is like, now's not the best time to say this. Or <laughs> maybe you shouldn't load that patient that had two-day practices today and needs to go to class. Maybe, maybe today is a soft tissue day. Those are valuable. And uh, I don't think PT school teaches you that. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, as you're navigating that world amongst the strength coaches, the position coaches, the trainers, the, um, the athletic trainers, the sport, uh, like dietitians and everything like that, kind of what was like one thing that you learned PT can kind of do best to make sure, you know, we don't step on the other toes, but we also practice our autonomy best in that like interprofessional sports medicine team. Yeah. I mean, um, I would say in that setting, Physical therapists are typically used, and I don't mean to stereotype our profession, but those who work in this world get it. Um, Post-operative rehabs belong almost entirely to us. Certainly our athletic training partners and our strength conditioning partners are going to be a, a big part of that too, but PTs will predominantly lead the show in that. Um, lots of manual therapies in the Division One setting. You know, Athletes are going to be going to the physical therapist for manipulations and soft tissue and mobs and you know whatever it is that you want, whatever name you want attached to it. Um, and, uh, a lot of dry needling as well. Uh, PTs were, were used quite a bit for that. And, um, those were, if you had to stereotype us and our role in that, those were the bigger things that we would do. But, you know, certainly if there's a guy who's trying to, um, 
transition from rehab land back into sport performance world. Um, the PT was often in the weight room making sure that, um, one, they were doing well, two, if they needed like a quick tweak with form or a lateral to another exercise that did the same thing, but just in a different way, the PT was there for that. Um, obviously, the strength conditioning personnel would be informed of what was going on then too, but the PT was certainly available there to provide more detailed, you know, um, hands-on and direct attention to that athlete. So those, those were some of the big things, obviously sideline management type two, but the athletic trainers take most of that. Certainly their reps are in the thousands where our reps are typically in the hundreds. We can both do it, but playing to their strengths is very important, much like they play to ours with post-op rehab. So, um, I mean, definitely fumbled around and tripped over my feet a few times and trying to figure out that world. But I think, uh, I finally landed to a place where I get it for the most part. Don't make mistakes, but I right. get it now. <laughs> yeah. So obviously you stumbled f- far enough and well enough, and you kind of worked hard enough to get to a position where you are now. So kind of tell us a little bit kind of how you started at the USOPC and uh, kind of tell us a little bit more about your role. Sure. So um, I guess I'll talk about how I got here first, but you know, essentially I've, I've kind of told you about my stepping stones up to this point. So went from, you know, residency to then fellowship and uh, after fellowship, I actually went back into outpatient care uh, in uh, a leadership role and a, a role within the residency program, actually back at Ironman. Um, but while I was doing that, I started to get involved with the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy. And I got involved with uh, the knee special interest group um, from a guy named Brandon Schmidt, a very good physical therapist up in New York. And uh, I got involved in this leadership board and we're putting out content and doing different things for the knee special interest group. And one of the other physical therapists that were part of this leadership panel, her name is Kelsey Whitman. She works here at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. Um, I was kind of poking around because I was, you know, I was enjoying my time in outpatient care, but I was kind of looking to, to make my transition into high level sports. And um, I just asked her, I was like, hey, do you know anything uh, open in Colorado? And she said, actually, we're posting a position. Uh, next week you're at the training center are you interested i was like uh absolutely so you know uh it's i'm sure as many of your guests have said um networking is wildly important knowing people in these different positions and uh asking them for advice and different insights on you know how to to get into the field is very important as well but up until that point i had the stepping stones that allowed me to have kind of the clout or expertise or background to even be competitive for a role like this um yeah. So in summary, I got a, I got a leg up on the position before it was posted. And then uh, thankfully my training took me the rest of the way for the, the interviews and some of the clinical cases they gave me before, before coming on board. But um, in terms of summary of what I do here, so we have three Olympic and Paralympic training centers um, in the country. Uh, obviously I'm here in Colorado Springs. We have another one in Chula Vista, California, and then another one in Lake Placid, New York. And uh, we're all a little bit different. We all house uh, different resident sports here, um, but function primarily the same with the same idea. So here on campus in Colorado Springs, it's kind of interesting. We, we truly have a multidisciplinary team and everyone says that, but like we, we really do live it. Um, I work on the floor with other athletic trainers and chiropractors hand in hand. I'll treat on tables next to them while they're treating their athletes. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, we have a very large rehabilitative staff, but we also have a medical staff as well. We have a chief medical officer. His name is Dr. Finoff and he is a DO and we have a physician assistant named Jen Carroll who, who works alongside Dr. Finoff. 
And, uh, you know, whatever the athletes need, we have it. And if for whatever reason we don't have it, we have a very large network that spans across the country. We call it our national medical network, different hospitals that we partner with, and uh, we'll make sure our athletes get the care that they need. So if you imagine kind of what clinic here feels like, it's like a blend of a traditional physical therapy clinic, but also like a meshing of an athletic training room. And uh, athletes can certainly come in and do like walk-in appointments, but they can also schedule as well, which we encourage them to, to get their time slots. And, um, you know, people might come in, athletes might come in, ask for a quick manipulation. And if it's justified, we'll manipulate them and they'll leave. Or you can insert whatever other manual therapy they may request. It could be anything from a 15-minute to a 30-minute-long session, or it might be a traditional hour of, like, post-operative rehab. So it's kind of a weird hybrid. I'm sure there's no other kind of medical setting in the world that feels quite like this. Um, And then uh, as a physical therapist, I'll sometimes do sideline venue coverage and... um, I've traveled for the Tokyo and Beijing games and um, just lots of different weird niche opportunities that just don't come along in traditional PT practice. And I love it. It's great. Yeah. So actually the way I found about out about who you are is kind of wrapping it even fuller, fuller circle um, was through the AASPT's um, Instagram page. You did it kind of like, you know, quote unquote behind the scenes, um, kind of your day in the life in Tokyo. And then um, I think I think you just did in Tokyo. So kind of tell us a little bit more about the craziness that was kind of you know doing hosting a Olympic Games while kind of you know in the middle of a pandemic and you know some of the experiences that you ha- you had there. Yeah, and man, it's, it feels so long ago already. But um, overall, it was pretty wild. It was a really fun experience. So um, essentially, for Tokyo, we uh, Team USA rented out. Um, basically was like a public rec center um, in Japan that was like 45 minutes outside of the village. And, you know, when people think the Olympics, they traditionally will think of the Olympic village, which is fair. But we, we rented out this rec center. We brought all our equipment there. We brought all our staff there. We set up a gate around it. We hired security and we said, this is a little slice of America. Like this is ours now. <laughs> and uh, so I was stationed there with a bunch of other medical providers Um, similar to the list I gave, you know, for, for, um, the training center here and, um, athletes could, uh, drive, you know, the 40, 45 minutes from the village, um, to the high performance center, um, and just be around, uh, other American athletes. Um, it felt comfortable. It was spacious. The village gets very, very busy with all the different countries sharing it. And they knew that they could come here and get dedicated care, attention, um, food that was familiar to them, uh, training venues that they knew belonged specifically to them and they didn't have to fight for times from anyone else. Um, and it was basically like a home away from home. We had uh, food services there and sports medicine and strength conditioning and we had it all. And it was a really cool setup um, that uh, I'm, not, I'm not aware of any other country who did that. And uh, it was really successful. The feedback was great and uh, I think really served as a, as a getaway for a lot of our athletes. Yeah. So, and then next, I think the following year, cause it was 20, technically 2020, but it was tw- in 21. Um, you went to Beijing in 2022, correct? Yep. Earlier this year. Um, kind of tell us a little bit how that was different, obviously summer and winter games, but kind of tell us a little bit how that was different. If you know how COVID impacted that and your experiences there. Yeah. Um, so when I was in Beijing, um, I was stationed in the Olympic village. So again, what your viewers would probably, um, kind of imagine in their head. So you have the Olympic Village and imagine um, 
a bunch of like, for lack of a better word, like apartment complex towers are built for the games and they house the different countries. The athletes live there. And then when the games are done, they convert them into like apartments for like um, the general public. So uh, Team USA, you know, we had our own tower. Um, I don't remember the specific floors, but say we had 24 floors. Your first floor was your lobby. And then your second floor would be like sports medicine and different uh, admin staff, sports psych, registered dietitians, um, and all the uh, supportive personnel that we brought with us for the athletes. So if you're an athlete on floor six and, uh, you know, it's 7 p.m. and you're winding down for the night, but you have some aches and pains and you want to get them checked out or get some manual therapies, whatever, you come on down to floor two and uh, we got you. Just come on in. Um, Kairos, PTs, athletic trainers, physicians, massage therapists, whatever you need, we got you. And uh, it's, it's certainly a really great support system for these athletes who have been training arguably their whole lives um, in the last four years for this event to just get them everything they need so they can focus on performing and performing well. Um, and yeah, so Beijing and Tokyo felt different. Uh, Beijing felt ex much more strict. Um, Tokyo was certainly strict as well, but the cultures there are a little different from China to Japan. And um, now just lots of interesting stories and, you know, just trying to do our jobs and uh, still abide by all the different COVID restrictions because there were quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Um, so your journey has kind of taken you all over the country and now quite all over the world. Um, so obviously you love sports PT and you have for quite a long time. So what is one of the things that makes sports PT so fulfilling? Um, you know, I like to ask this question to everybody. Because, you know, everyone's answer is probably similar enough, but there's always something that kind of stands out and makes it unique to each person. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, so it's interesting. Like, if I take a step back, like, we have so many different uh, employees here with Team USA at the USOPC, and most of them are admin in nature. We have, like, a headquarters downtown and hundreds of employees that work to make sure we're fiscally sound and the games get launched and they, they're launched safely. And um, sports medicine, we're one of the, the few employees here in a system that is not entirely medical. I don't work for a hospital system. We work for the USOPC. And sports medicine is a very small niche pocket of that. And we're a few of the employees here that work directly with the athletes, which is pretty cool. And not a lot of our um, administrative staff uh, at headquarters get to immediately do that. And um, a lot of our athletes here whether they're Olympians or Paralympians or elite level or, you know, or hopefuls, um, they have some pretty wild stories and some pretty wild trajectories. And um, to be a part of that on a day-to-day -day basis we, is, is very special. Um, we have a unique situation here where if you're an athlete at the training center of, you know, essentially high enough skill level that your sport is going to pay for you to live on campus as what we call a resident athlete. Um, we see these guys and these girls like daily. And um, to do that uh, is pretty cool. And to see how they evolve over time, you know, if, if you see these guys or girls when they're really young, 17 or 18, and how they evolve and mature over the course of their career. And you see their successes um, and their failures. And to know that you're a small part of that, whether to celebrate the wins or to help them stand back up after the losses, um, is really something else. And, um, you know, a lot of our athletes 
do well fiscally, you know, depending on their sport. Um, but a lot of our athletes uh, don't, or they do just fine, and they have a, a regular lifestyle from a physical, uh, a fiscal standpoint, but just are doing their sport for the love of the game. That's really fun. And uh, I've never worked directly in professional athletics. I've never worked for the NFL or the NBA. So I can't speak entirely to how that feels different from this. Um, but we just work with some really awesome people that have, have touched me um, in a lot of different ways and just seeing, you know, their trajectory and being a part of that. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about that population. Um, so out in Colorado, do you guys house both winter and summer athletes? Yeah. So predominantly, I spoke earlier about our Lake Placid location up in uh, New York. They have most of our winter sports. Um, and it, it just depends. So to take a step back, we have, um, they're called national governing bodies. We call it the acronym is an NGB. And NGBs are their own little entities. So like, think like USA Volleyball, USA mm -hmm. Soccer, USA Basketball, just to generically name a few. Um, and uh, those uh, different NGBs will have headquarters in different spots around the country. So we have several of those headquarters here, like USA Swimming is here in Colorado Springs. Um, USA Track and Field is at Chula Vista in California. And, you know, a lot of our winter sport NGBs are certainly located at Lake Placid. So we sometimes see some winter athletes here as a one-off, uh, but we don't have the teams here specifically. Yeah. Gotcha. But regardless, you know, no matter what, uh, I guess, seasonal sports you have, you're seeing quite a variety of sports, I'm sure, from, you know, uh, from it could be a fencer to someone, a boxer, say. Um, so kind of how is it working with athletes from completely, you know, back, different backgrounds, different body types, different like sports demands? How is it working with all those, like, such a variety of people? Uh, challenging. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, I've been here a year and a half now and I think I'm doing a decent job, but certainly in the first six months, um, you're talking to athletes about their sport and trying not to sound like a complete idiot. Like before I started here, I didn't know what pentathlon was. Um, or what sports were involved in that. <laughs> I had never been around boxing before. Uh, I had been around some like MMA, like martial art type sports, but never judo. And uh, I mean, don't even ask me about like shooting, like USA shooting is here on campus and what a niche specific sport. But um, yeah, so the majority, I would say almost, I would say all the athletes are super excited to teach you about their sport because they're so passionate about it. And, uh, you know, depending on the sport, they, they know that it's a niche sport. It's not like, you know, the NFL or something that's more mainstream here in the States. But they're super excited and passionate about their sport. And to teach you about it so you can be a better clinician is something that everyone is super forthcoming about. Gotcha. Um, and so, you know, talking about, you know, trying to learn all these different types of sports so you can treat these different types of people. Um, what are some challenges of being a sports PT for USOPC? Something else that from an outsider's perspective, we might not see um, that something that is like, wow, this is, I didn't expect this walking into this job. That's a good question. I would say the first thing that comes to mind is, so there are different ways that athletes get to see us and I'll, I'll try to paint the picture and then answer your question. But you can be, again, a high enough skill level that your NGB is, is paying for you to live on campus. So you get access to all the different services here on campus, food, sports medicine, training, strength conditioning, whatever. Uh, you could be an athlete that lives in the community of Colorado Springs. So you have a house here, but you drive on the training center and you train here 
almost treat it like how a regular everyday normal person would treat a gym. Like you, you use gold, you know, gold's gym or lifetime, whatever you drive on campus and you train and then you go back home. Um, and then to get to your question, we have a subset of athletes that uh, will be flown in specifically to work with our sports medicine staff on an injury that um, either has had a bad start out of the gate rehab wise, or we want to make sure starts off, starts off on the right foot. So sometimes we have these weird like athlete encounters that last a few days or they last like a week or two. And then, uh, you know, either we transition to telehealth or we have to find a provider in the community or the country that we trust to take care of our, our guys and girls. And uh, that's challenging. And uh, finding someone that you trust and making sure that you also offer that provider autonomy but also making sure that that athlete is being taken care of a way that, that we expect, like to the standards that we hold here for ourselves, um, is challenging. And it's strange. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I, I'm, I'm finding more providers around the country, like sports physical therapists, than, than actually treating the athletes. But um, that has been a, diff, a, a very strange challenge I've never encountered before in my career. Yeah, I'm sure that's quite odd. You know, if you see someone for a week and then all of a sudden they're jetting back off to their hometown and you got to hopefully, you know, find someone that can, you know, has high enough equipment and, you know, the experience to be able to treat this like very high level athlete. I know. And I think we've all had like, whether it's that CI or that boss or that supervisor that was just like looking over your shoulder and making sure that you did everything to the way that they typically treat clinically. Uh, it's really frustrating, and you certainly want to embrace who you are as a person and as a clinician. And, you know, I try to balance that when we when we speak with different providers that work with our athletes. But at the same time, like, the stakes are so high, and we just have to find a delicate balance of, you know, um, collaborating well, but also ensuring that our athletes just get top-notch care. Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of speaking to those like very high stakes, like this is like you're working with Olympic athletes. And like you said, they've been training probably their entire lives for to compete at this like event that happens for them every four years. So kind of let's say you have an athlete that's in long term rehab and they they're kind of going at it. How do you kind of ensure that, you know, from day zero all the way till getting onto the stage of wherever they're performing? How do you make sure that they're like the highest level? Like how do you make sure they're appropriately challenged to be able to you know, do a double backflip or do, you know, dive off a 30 foot, like high diving board. What do you do? Like make sure to do like, so they're at like the highest performance level possible. Yeah. Uh, my short answer is to lean on a lot of people and <laughs> ask a lot of questions, but no, like two things come to mind. Um, like if you're familiar with some of Tim Gabbett's work, uh, uh, out of Australia, you know, he talks about finding your floor and finding your ceiling. So, where is your floor? Where are you starting from? What surgery did they have? What restrictions do they have? And how much load can they tolerate while still maintaining the integrity of their surgery? And then their ceiling. So what are the expectations of their sport? Uh, and uh, what's going to be demanded of them when they get back to that highest level? And then from there, just kind of reverse engineering it and working from the ceiling back to the floor and planning out what that looks like while also taking in all your post-operative um, kind of considerations from your physical therapy knowledge. And, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, acutely like post-operative care generally looks the same, you know, whether you're in the outpatient world, the division one world, the Olympic Paralympic world, professional world. Um, certainly the frequency is higher and the level of detail is probably higher, but the, the interventions don't change a whole ton. 
but you know, when you start getting further out, you know, like, you know, I'm speaking generically, like three or four month mark, we start to pull in other providers here um, and play to their strengths as well. So we get the strength conditioning involved, uh, the strength conditioning team involved. We'll start to speak to the different medical providers attached to that sport. And we start to get them involved for some sports specific type stuff. And then certainly somewhere along the way, we're going to involve their coaches as well and work closely with them on trying to get um, some of the sports specific stuff nailed in during late stage rehab. Now, like uh, in regular everyday life, you, you can get by just fine uh, with a, like a basic standard physical therapy knowledge, learning some of the niche aspects of a sport and then playing to that. But um, here and just like the late stages, you just have to understand what the demands are. And uh, sometimes the sports are just, you know, things that you never grew up watching or listening or learning about. And uh, you need to lean on the team around you for sure. Gotcha. Um, so a couple more questions before we get you out of here, Chris. Um, I'm sure your days are very different, um, you know, depending on who you're seeing. But kind of walk us through a day in the life of what it's like to be a USOPC um PT. Yeah. So, um, again, our staff, we typically play to the strengths of everyone. Um, but I would say like our physical therapists, we kind of have like a flex role and we'll do different things outside of just general clinic care. But, um, so we have a clinic, we do, we have a clinic here on campus, like we talked about, and typically our physical therapists will staff that, uh, you know, we have multiple practices going on around campus at a given time and our athletic trainers, again, playing to their strengths, will typically be the ones covering that. But um, if teams, you know, NGBs travel internationally and they need coverage and they either request our athletic trainers to go to the, with them or our athletic trainers are uh, assigned or attached to a team, they'll leave. And if we need personnel covering different sports, uh, we will. So it's, it, you know, it's, um, it's fairly common for our physical therapist or myself to go be um, with men's gymnastics as, as they practice or wrestling or, or boxing or whatever sport it is. So, um, you know, predominantly my day is in the clinic. We'll do some practice coverage type stuff. There is a surprising amount of meetings and admin and emailing to stay in communication with all the different cooks in the kitchen to make sure that uh, everyone is heard and everyone's expertise is utilized. Um, uh, frequently and appropriately for the benefit of the athlete. And then, uh, yeah, occasional travel opportunities come up. Like I said, I've been at Tokyo and Beijing and uh, other different things pop up as well, like national competitions and world competitions, which the general public doesn't really consider. But there are other events that athletes are training for outside of the four-year cycle for the games. So, um, yeah, man, depending on what day it is, it can feel like traditional phys physical therapy. And other days, it's the weirdest job ever for, for people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so in your time there at the USOPC, do you have a favorite memory, something that sticks out in particular? Yeah, I guess I'll speak to, I was trying to think of a, like, like a really specific patient interaction, but okay. Uh, answer, you know, um, being at, I think of like different interactions I've had with athletes at, uh, in Tokyo at the high performance center. And, uh, you know, one of the times I sat down and really like reflected on what I was doing and where I was and who I was with. Um, one of the American judo athletes was competing and uh, certainly not the whole judo team was there because it's, you know, they compete based on weight class. And I'm, I'm sitting there, they have TVs set up around the high performance center. So while you're grabbing a bite to eat, you can watch this, you know, the sports live. 
and I'm sitting in a room with like 15 judo athletes and I'm like, they are using the strangest language and celebrating weirdest things. And uh, they're just really cool guys and girls. And, you know, we're sitting there and we're shooting the shit and we're watching and, you know, they're getting all fired up. And essentially, <laughs> like, um, I hope I pronounce it right, but, uh, you know, a match ended. There was a really big, flashy aerial throw and everyone starts like screaming, Epon, Epon. I'm like, what, what the hell is Epon mean? And essentially, it's, it's the word for like the end of the match. And um, it, it happens if there's a very large, flashy, aerial throw, takedown type thing that Judah's known for. <laughs> and uh, the ref, I hope that's the name of the person that's uh, watching the fight. The ref calls an Epon, matches over, and uh, a win is assigned to one of the athletes. And um, just being with them and watching them celebrate, and uh, they're using all their sports-specific words. And I'm in a foreign country, and I've never met any of these guys or girls before. <laughs> It's just kind of cool. And uh, we're sitting there and there wasn't any patients in clinic at the time. And we're just hanging out and learning from them on their sports, something they're so passionate about. And moments like that make me take a, take a seat and just think uh, how lucky and blessed I am to be here. You know? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great story. Um, you know, those are the moments we kind of live for as like sports PTs. Um, so last question before we get you out of here, Chris, do you have any advice for any aspiring sports PTs, whether they want to work in college sports, if they want to work an outpatient, pro sports, or if they want to be work for the USOPC, similar to you, what advice would you have for those different types of PTs? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a couple pieces of advice that come to mind. Um, you know, for those folks in the outpatient world, um, the outpatient sports world or the outpatient ortho world that are trying to make their break into high-level sports, like know the reps that you're getting with the general public and your occasional high-level athlete in the outpatient realm, know those reps matter. Um, cutting your teeth in the trenches kind of thing. Um, all of that will come back around and will serve its purpose someday. And you may not see it now. I mean, certainly you're benefiting your patients now, but I, I know for many of the goal is to get into the elite, the elite world of athletics. Um, and uh, you'll find so many strange parallels from treating those folks to treating high-level athletes. You know, the general, public, uh, the general public can be finicky, can be sometimes difficult to work with. The same thing happens with athletes. It's not like you get to this level and everyone is great all the time and you click with every single person that walks in the door. We still have our growing pains here and our woes in this world as well. So just like find some solace in that and knowing that as you develop as a clinician and a person, it is all, it's not for not, you're gonna get there. And it's going to make sense one day. And uh, my other piece of advice, and I say this just because I wish I could tell a younger version of myself this, um, for those of you who are residency trained or fellowship trained or one or the other, um, just because you've done that, and it's, it's quite the accomplishment, and I commend it, um, I commend you and your efforts, but like the world doesn't owe you shit. Sports physical therapy does not owe you shit. It doesn't give you an opportunity. It doesn't give you an excuse to have an ego like you're more than. Certainly, your skill set will be bolstered a little bit. Um, you might be ahead of your years a little bit more. But it doesn't, it doesn't owe you a job. And that took me a while to figure that out, like that this whole experience is not about me. Um, and now that I've finally been able to settle into that, I, I just feel at peace. Obviously, I'm on the other side of things, and I've, I've landed my dream job. But if you can identify and learn that sooner and recognize that the way that you interact with people is probably more important 
um, you know, than how you treat them uh, is really how you're going to make relationships and create a good foundation to kind of launch yourself off from to make it into this world. I think of really a younger version of me was a little arrogant. I probably shut some doors with some different relationships just because I thought people owed me something. Um, and they didn't, uh, you know, I put a little bit of extra effort in with the residency and the fellowship thing and some continuing education, but yeah, it doesn't guarantee anything, but I can promise you it will certainly help get you. Gotcha. There. Well, I think those are great pieces of advice. Um, you know, hopefully someone that's listening can take that into their own practice. Um, but Chris, Chris, this has been great. I'm finally, you know, I'm glad that we finally got you on the podcast. Um, you've had a lot of, you know, great experiences, a lot of great stories and um, a lot of great pieces of advice. Um, but before we get you out of here, is there anything that you would like to plug or anything like that? Yeah, man, I appreciate the shout out on that. And it's, it's good to give a shameless plug, but we just launched a, uh, what we're calling our Olympic and Paralympic Sports Physical Therapy Fellowship Program. Uh, it's quite the name, but we launched it last year. And our first fellow, uh, Olivia Rowland, has done an awesome job. And uh, essentially, you know, we are modeling it after what other similar fellowships are giving, like Division One fellowships, Upper Extremity fellowships. So it's a uh, year-long commitment, um, you know, uh, for your, your viewers who, you know, are thinking about residency or fellowship. It is paid. And um, essentially what you'll do is you come on board and you're treated – essentially like a staff member and you get the same experiences as what our physical therapists here do um, from day to day, covering practice, treating patients, um, some different travel opportunities if it works out um, and people are in need and um, just learning how to navigate the culture uh, that is uh, Olympic and Paralympic sport and um, pretty awesome opportunity. I mean, I, again, we don't see the general public. We just see, Olympians, Paralympians, and elite level uh, hopefuls who are basically striving for that. And um, it's, it's just been uh, pretty cool to see how it evolves. There is a curriculum and dedicated mentorship, uh, interdisciplinary collaboration with um, those on our medical team and our ATs and our Kairos. And um, I'm, I'm sure there's nothing quite like it um, out there in, in the residency or fellowship world. But um, we are uh, going to bring it back for our second year and hope to continue this around here. And uh, if you're interested, um, I hope that uh, you reach out and you ask me a few questions. Basically requirements to apply for this are either you have completed a residency program, either sports or orthopedics, or uh, you have uh, a board certification in either um, sports physical therapy or orthopedic physical therapy. And if you go that route, that ensures, you know, you have A, three years um, underneath your belt of being a clinician, and B, you've, you've worked to specialize yourself. Um, fellowship's weird. It's not like um, people who do fellowship are not as green as those who do uh, residency. So we just need to make sure that um, they come on board with a good skill set and can uh, jump into the game. And certainly they get guidance and dedicated mentorship along the way, but we have those requirements because you have to come in ready for, you know, a lot of the expectations of what our athletes are looking for. But yeah, hope people have some interest in it for sure. Outside of that, I don't think I have too much else to plug. I write for the prehab guys on the side, give the prehab guys a follow. They put out great content and are a bunch of good physical therapists who are trying to change the world um, in terms of what we do. And uh, no, that's about it, man. Yeah. The prehab guys were actually, before I even got into PT school, one of the first people that I followed in the PT world. So that's actually really, really, really cool. 
Um, I'll make sure I plug your Instagram and obviously I'm sure everyone knows the prehab guys, but I'll put theirs too. Um, yeah, Chris, thank you so much for your time. And this has been the latest episode of the sports rehab experts podcast. Huge shout out to the PT for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, Chris Lefevre, for coming on today's episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. If you liked what you heard or want to hear more episodes from great future guests, please like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening.